Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. And for those of you who have enjoyed our prior conversations with um, the behavioral psychologists like Bob Schiller and Richard Thaler and Danny Kahneman and Meyer Statman and any of the other folks who work in that space, I think you're going to find this conversation to be absolutely delightful. Uh, Robert Cialdini is a professor at Arizona. Uh, he is also the author of what everybody I know who works in any form of marketing or sales calls their Bible. Uh, he wrote the book Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion, and he tells some just absurdly delightful stories of spending time uh, working undercover at used car sales places and um, infomercial sorts of shops and uh, fundraisers. Uh, he also explains how Charlie Munger of Berkshire Hathaway was so taken by the book uh, that 30 years ago he sent Bob a single share of Berkshire Hathaway stock. Uh, and as you can imagine, turned out pretty well uh, when everything is said and done. I found the conversation absolutely delightful, and I'm sure you will also, with no further ado, my conversation with Bob Cialdini. My extra special guest is Dr. Robert Cialdini. He received his PhD from the University of North Carolina and did some postdoc work at Columbia. Uh, he is currently the region's professor emeritus of psychology and marketing at Arizona State University. He is perhaps best known as the author of the book Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, that book has sold 3 million copies in over 30 languages. He is also a co-author of 50 Scientifically Proven Ways to Be Persuasive. His latest book is Persuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade. Robert Cialdini, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. I'm very glad to be with you and your listeners. Same here. I'm excited to talk to you because everybody I know who works in the field of sales and marketing when I just casually mentioned, oh, by the way, uh, my guest this week is going to be uh, Dr. Cialdini, Professor Cialdini. They were like, what? From Influence? So they were very excited to, uh, to hear we were having this conversation. And I have to begin with the story of the original research you did for the book Influence. It almost sounds like an urban legend. You spent three years undercover working as a used car salesman, a telemarketer, um, a fundraiser. What, what was that period like, and how instructive was it? It was the most instructive and most entertaining research enterprise I've ever in, engaged in uh, because not only was it fun uh, to mix up 
the uh, mix up with the ideas of people who were actually practitioners who were in the business of getting us to say yes, not just the study of it, mm-hmm. uh, but also I learned so much as a consequence of how they employed psychology, which is my field, uh, to move others in their direction. Did you go into that research expecting I'll get a book out of it, or was it really let me get some practical grounding in the field before I become a pure academic? No, that's really a good question. I went into it to get some ideas for doing research in my laboratories. where I would say something this way versus that way and see how many people agreed with it. It was the same thing. I would just say it in different ways. Mm -hmm. But I realized that by staying located in a laboratory with college students as my subjects, I was missing the power of -hmm. these techniques to really make a difference outside of the laboratory in the real world. Well, there were professions dedicated to getting others to say yes to them, and it seemed to me there was a lot to learn if I infiltrated their training programs and learned what they were teaching their prospective professionals. When when did you decide, hey, you know, there could be a book in this? Well, you know, that's exactly what happened to me about three months in, because what I was learning was telling me there are universal principles of persuasion and a limited number, not just hundreds or thousands of tactics. They could be they could be categorized under six basic categories, tendency, human tendencies that incline people toward yes. And so I thought I could put each one as a chapter in a book and tell the story of what are the fundamental reasons that people say yes to requests. As, as I was rereading influence and reading persuasion, I couldn't help notice the parallels to behavioral finance. So you were doing your work in the early 80s around the same time as some of the early work in behavioral finance. Uh, when you were doing your research or the academic side of it, did, did you ever come across the works of Kahneman, Tversky, Thaler, Schiller, all the behavioral scientists of that era, or were these two completely different paths? They were parallel paths that converged about five or ten years later when I realized, oh, wait a minute, the work that was coming out of the practitioners who were in the streets Mm -hmm. was comparable to the work that was coming out of the scholars who were at in the avenues. <laughs> what I did was to move from the from my university position, the avenues, into the streets. That was the smartest thing I ever did. So there are some examples that are just simply amazing, and I want to give a few examples. Can we increase voter turnout simply by surveying people and asking them not who they're going to vote, but asking them to make a prediction whether or not they're going to vote? What, what's the impact of that? In fact, there is research to show that that's the case because people then set a path in their mind and a time in their mind, and they then use those features as cues that spur them into action. Or if it's just left ambiguous, there are really no cues in their mind that send them into a behavior change. So simply asking people, 
And when you ask people, hey, do you think you're going to vote this year? Most people are going to say, yeah, I expect to vote. That simple act then gets them committed to actually voting. And if you say, where and when will you vote, that doubles it. That doubles it. So my local polling place is the library or the school around the corner. Right. And and it's November 6th, uh, hypothetically, this year. That has an impact. That does. That's quite astonishing. So when you were writing the book after your three-year experience um, in the trenches— did you have any idea how successful this was going to be as a book? Did you have any idea the sort of reaction this was going to engender? I could not have sensibly known, Barry, because there were no books like this. Mm-hmm. And did I, you have an? So sometimes I'll wrap. I'll sometimes I'll write a column, and I'll say, "Oh, this is the greatest thing ever," and yeah. it just lands and nobody cares. Right. And every now and then I'll put something out, and I'm like, "Oh, that's not bad," and it just goes viral. Goes crazy. I'm yeah. curious if at a book length you have similar. You had a sense at the very least. This is very different than than the academic literature that's out there. Right, but I didn't know that it was going to be adopted uh, outside of the academic community. Uh, which it has. I I was in Poland recently, and I have a colleague from Poland, uh, Professor Wilhelmina Wosinska. She said to me, you know, Bob, your book Influence is so famous in Poland, my students think you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) That's fascinating. You you wrote the book in the early 80s. How has the state of the art on psychology and persuasion changed since then? The tendencies that people employ to decide whether to say yes have not changed. Those were evolved over eons. They're still in us, uh, hardwired. What's changed is the channels available for using uh, or tapping those tendencies. And the biggest change is the Internet. We now have available to us information about what other people like us have done, are choosing to do, have opinions about from around the world, chat rooms, interest groups, uh, various kinds of review sites, and so on. We know what thousands of people who have similar interests as us are thinking and doing and reacting. And if we follow that lead, which is what I call the principle of social proof, we are much more likely to be successful because we've essentially beta tested with all these people the proper response. So I'm going to go out on, on a limb here and say, of all people, you were probably not very surprised about the role of Facebook and fake news possibly having an influence in, in the last election. I am not surprised because of that principle of social proof. We look Mm -hmm. around us, what are the people around us doing? And then there's a second uh, uh, dimension. What are the people around us like us doing? Well, that's Facebook. So you talk about social proof. There's an example in several of your books that I'm just tickled by. Uh, Somebody was selling something on an infomercial, and they changed three little words on the tagline. what, what you normally hear, operators are standing by, please call now. It's almost a throwaway line. Right. They changed it to, if operators are busy, please call again. 
And that simple change broke all sorts of sales records going back 25 years. Is that simply a case of social proof that, oh, the lines are going to be busy, lots of people are buying it, therefore I should buy it? Is it? Are we that easily manipulated? It can't be anything else, Barry, because think about it. To say if a lot of people, you know, to say you might be inconvenienced if you try to call us is like death in almost any other right. sense, right? You don't don't try to access our product because you might not be able to get access to. It. This is saying if a lot of people, if if uh, if the lines are busy, call again. That means. A lot of people, just like me, are doing this. The, I better get on this train. Do you think they had any idea in advance how successful that simple little change was going to be? No. It just they just got lucky. This is what they do with with, with folk. they try out a lot of different things, and then when they hit on one, they realize, oh, this works. But they don't realize why it works. It's not their job to know why it works. That's my job. <laughs> That's what I do for a living. So, so let me um, bring up one of my favorite stories from Influence that just cracks me up. There are these two old tailors, Sid and Harry Drubeck, one of whom is uh, hard of hearing. And uh, the first one, uh, he has a customer trying on a suit. And he asked the other one, who's across the room, yeah. st stitching something up, uh, how much is this Is this uh, suit? And the answer comes back, 40 That's a very fine uh, wool suit. It's $42. This is during the Depression. Dur right, way yeah. back when. And the hard-of-hearing one turns to the customer and says, he said it's $22, <laughs> and the customer thinks he's getting a deal, immediately buys it. Right. Again, are, are, is it that easy to fool our wetware that just, oh, it's a $42 suit. I'm getting it $20 yeah. off. Let me get it before anybody realizes. It is that easy because we are so hardwired for these principles. They just cause us to leap into a choice when one or another of them is present. Let me give you a quote from the book, which I find fascinating. We all fool ourselves from time to time in order to keep our thoughts and beliefs consistent with what we have already done. Why is the desire for consistency such a motivator of behavior? Two reasons. One is we prefer to have our, for reasons of self-concept, to be consistent within ourselves, right? We want to see ourselves as reasonable, as logical, and, and rational individuals who would, be, who would say one thing that would fit with the next thing we say. The other is the people around us want us to be consistent too. And so for both of those reasons, internal uh, status and external status, we want to be consistent and appear to be consistent in our environments. So, so let's talk about the status of social primates in a group. Uh, why is reciprocity such a strong influencer? Is this just the result of our evolutionary biology uh, becoming the dominant species as part of a a social group of primates that lived and worked in in teams, or what? How do you explain that? Yeah, I think I think it's both hardwired in us over a long period of time. If we give back to those who give to us first, that's the rule of reciprocity. Mm -hmm. We have to do that. Right? Uh, then 
people will want to be with us, will want to work with us, will want to exchange with us. If we don't do that, we have very nasty names for people who take without giving in return. We call them moochers or takers or teenagers, actually. (laughs) Uh, And nobody wants to be labeled like that. So we will go to great lengths to give back after we have received. I just saw a study uh, in a candy shop. If a if a manager greets um, people who come into the store warmly and then invite, uh, invites them to the counter, that's the control group. If instead he in greet, greets them warmly and gives them a piece of chocolate, they buy 42% more candy. Really? That's amazing. That, that's they're astonishing. Giving, they're the, giving back. The other reference you make is um, in, in one of the books, and they're all kind of a blur in my head, but... If when you hand the check to somebody at a restaurant, when the waiter brings the check, if you include a mint or a chocolate with the check, what does that end up doing versus having a mint at the desk on the way out? It means the server has given you something personally, and the server's tip goes up 3.3% if there's a mint on the tray. Now, here's the interesting thing. If there are two mints on the tray, his tip goes up 14.1%. Really? That's amazing. Um, Let's do another social proof, which is I'm fascinated with. What's a simple way to avoid hung juries? Aha. Don't let people vote preliminarily by raising their hands. Can't be in public, in other words. You need a secret. You write the vote down. You take a test straw poll. Right. But once you raise your hand in public, you're now— you're committed for for now. Is that social proof or is that consistency? It, it's consistency. You will now resist changing your mind, even in the face of evidence, because you've made a public commitment to that choice. Huh. Quite quite fascinating. The example of the smoker who hand wrote a bunch of notes. I promise you, I will never smoke another cigarette, and gave them out to coworkers and friends and a now former boyfriend, but at the time a, a serious boyfriend, that that smoker said the only thing that prevented her from ever smoking again were those notes. Is that commitment and consistency or social approval and social proof? It's commitment and consistency because of social approval. Violating your promise in the face of the people you care about means you lose their approval And so that's the thing that people don't want to do. So if they make a public commitment to people they really care about, Mm -hmm. that will hold them steady to their choice, more than making that a private commitment to themselves. So I thought about doing, when I read that in the book, I thought about doing that exact thing. And I have to tell you, honestly, it really scared me. Because once you write it down and commit to five or ten people, that's a powerful, powerful thing hanging over your head. You have to decide, do I really want to fill in the blank, go to the gym, lose weight, whatever? Once you, once you make that commitment, that is just really strong. And it's remarkable how small the commitment can be. There's a study done in Chicago by a restaurant owner. He had his receptionist change two words in what she said when she took an order, a, a reservation, excuse me, from... Please call if you have to change or cancel your reservation to will you please call if you have to change. And then she waited for people to say, yes, I will. 
it reduced no-shows by 64%. Wow, that's amazing. I have to ask you about the way you use the term um, compliance officials and compliance agents. It really is a question of getting people to comply with your goals, desires, or requests, isn't it? And it's different from persuasion. I don't have to persuade somebody that we should see this movie that I prefer if I just say, you know, you chose the movie last time. So I've, I've changed them. I've influenced them. I've gotten them to comply with my request without changing their opinion about the movie hmm. at all. Very interesting. So there was a 30-year period between influence and then persuasion, which is almost like a prequel to that book. Uh, I know you've done other writings in between, but really focusing on a big, bold idea and expanding it to a full book, why why did you take three decades and what motivated this book? I think the the key is that these are my only two solely authored books, First Influence, 30 Years Later, Persuasion. And the reason I waited is that I I didn't want to just plant a series of bushes around the tree that influence had become. Mm-hmm. I wanted to wait till I had the seed for another tree, and that didn't come along till the idea for persuasion. And and influence is a giant redwood we were discussing earlier. This is a tremendously influential book amongst marketing and sales professionals. Who do you think the audience for persuasion is going to be? Similar or diff- possibly different? It will also be influence professionals, but I hope it will also be uh, citizens who want to know that um, they can resist certain kinds of influence that they never recognized before. It's the influence that comes before they receive a persuasive appeal. And you give a number of examples of that, including um, some of my favorites were a little bit infuriating. Uh, the, the minor commitment for something small, and then later they ask for something big, or the underpricing of something. You get somebody to agree to buy something for much less money than it perhaps should have been, or a couple hundred bucks off a car or something. And then by the Shockingly, when, oh, somebody caught it, my manager, the bank, somebody caught the mistake, hey, this car isn't 24000 it's 25000 yeah. they still seem to go along with the purchase. I can't imagine tolerating that. Do most people put up with that, or it's, I would lose my mind in it, a car dealership. It's so common. Uh, it's called the lowball to technique. It actually has a, a, a label in car sales. This the is not an technique. accident. This is done on purpose. This is done on purpose. They do it. And very often it's done where they will give you a price on your trade-in. Too high. That, that's way too high. And then the used car manager comes in with the blue book and says, I'm sorry, our salesperson made a mistake. It's really this. And he shows you the, the real price and you say, okay, caught me. You never realize that they caught you. That's amazing. What what other things uh, can we do to to shield ourselves from these sorts of techniques other than read the book? Yeah, if you read the book, and by the way, if that ever happens to you, use the term lowball. Call it a lowball. That's against the law 
in most. Oh, really? Yes. I mean, it's against uh, regulations. In, you know, in state, state in rules. State, state rules. They will start backpedaling like a cornerback really? on a fly route. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. So you also mentioned um, the the scantily clad, lovely woman who came to your uh, house trying to sell you the book of entertainment stuff, and you said, "If only I had revealed that I understood the technique and called her out on it, she would have been out of there fast as as can be." Is it? Are these techniques that effective that as soon as people know you're using these techniques, they back away from them? Well. That's a crucial question because if they're being used dishonestly, yes. Then when we call them on them, we've caught them in the lie, right? Mm -hmm. And then they back away. But if they're being used honestly, if, for example, the last time I bought a television set, I was in an appliance store. I wasn't really looking for one. The salesman came up to me. He said, I see you're interested in this set over here that I was looking at, but it's our last one. Oh, really? And I just got a call from a woman who said she might come by this afternoon to buy it, right? Barry, 20 minutes later, I'm wheeling out of the store with that television set in my cart, and I'm supposed to be the doctor of influence. If you get suckered by these things, what hope do the rest of us have? Well, here's the key. Was I a sucker? I went back the next day to see if if there was an empty spot on the shelf. And? There was. Oh, really? And so I went back to my office and I wrote a glowing review of that store and that salesperson. But if there had been another one, I would have written a very negative review. That's how we have to defend ourselves, not just look at reviews from others who've experienced this store or that salesperson. We have to contribute to that so that they don't get away with it in the future. I have to uh, ask you about a Benjamin Franklin quote that you referenced that I'm also uh, tickled by. Quote, he that has once done you a kindness will be more ready to do you another than he who, whom you yourself has obliged. Tell the story, if you would, about uh, the person Franklin was having a hard time uh, with who had a, a a fairly substantial library. What yeah. what happened there? So this was a guy that Franklin was in conflict with regularly on a lot of uh, political issues. They didn't like each other, and so Franklin asked this guy to lend him a book. The guy did. Now the guy had a fairly substantial library right. of Ram manuscripts, and of course was deeply proud of of that library. Correct, and he gave. Franklin the book, and Franklin said in commentary, now he has to think of me differently. He has to think of me as someone who's worthy of receiving one of his prized books. I've changed his conception of me now. And he sends the book back with a note, I'm deeply obliged, uh, and if uh, you ever need a favor, please never hesitate to ask. The dynamic completely flips. Completely flips. Even though he's the one who's obligated, the person who was so difficult to him suddenly becomes much more uh, flexible, malleable, pleasant. He did a friendly thing, and he becomes a friend as a consequence. Is that the consistency? It is the consistency principle. Because you wouldn't have lent that book to him. Right. Uh, But it was the ego and the pride in the library that sort of... Right. You know, there's a a way to compliment people that fits with this. Compliment people to 
to give them reputations to live up to. Give them a compliment. So, for example, I've, I've got uh, a guy who, uh, uh, who delivers my newspaper every morning, and I want him to put it in the center of my driveway so it doesn't get wet when the um, sprinkler, sprinkler system. Yeah. So I wrote him a little note. Thank you, Carlos, for putting my, my paper in the center of the driveway, which he would do 80% of the time. Thank you for that. That's very conscientious of you. <laughs> right. Since then, 100 percent of the time. So you must be a dangerous person to be a neighbor with. People don't even realize what they're uh, what what they're dealing with. Let let me get, give you another quote of the from the book that I really like. Quote: People seem to be more motivated by the thought of losing something than by the thought of gaining something of equal value. That's kind of intriguing. Why, why is that? Is that simply the endowment effect? We put more value on that which we already have? Why does the prospect of a gain of equal value versus a loss sounds a lot like risk aversion, yeah. but um, yeah. why is that? Well, uh, you use the right term prospect because prospect theory, developed mm-hmm. by Daniel Kahneman, won him the Nobel Prize in economics right. a few years ago for the idea that the prospects of losing something are psychologically much more potent than the prospects of gaining that very same thing. He demonstrated it in a lot of ways. And the reason, I think, is evolutionary. If we gain some unit of value, say we're on, uh, we're, you know, here we are, we're doing okay, right? we gain something, now we're doing better. If we lose something, we might be gone. It's an existential threat, we, as opposed to a temporary right. increase in. We might standards. be below the subsistence level. We mm-hmm. might lose the ability to carry on. So we're much more interested in being sure we don't lose. And you're right about loss aversion as the uh, proper label for this. So let's talk about authority a little bit. There are some interesting things happening. In, in that space, where does authority come from and why is it so influential over us? It normally makes sense. Now, I'm thinking of authority as being an authority rather than being in authority, right? Somebody who's an expert, somebody who's knowledgeable, somebody who's a, an authority. Uh, an authoritative voice on a particular topic. It makes great sense to follow the lead of the people who know the most about that topic. It reduces our uncertainty as to what we should do, and it allows us to get off the fence, stop dillying and and Mm -hmm. dithering, and move forward to something valuable because it is associated with the views of the true experts on the topic. So here is a, uh, another quote. Nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you are thinking about it. Uh, and that comes from persuasion. Yeah. Why, why is that the case? This is actually a quote from Daniel Kahneman, and it has to do with the fact that when we focus our attention on something— we typically assign it more value as a result of that focus. And here's why. If, if you go into a new situation, you know what you're going to do? You're going to size up that situation and look to the feature in it that is most important to you. Mm-hmm. All right? 
So, if a commute, but there's a loophole in this system. If a communicator can get you to focus on some element in that situation, you presume that because you are focusing on it, it's more important to you. So in other words, by redirecting people's attention, you automatically get them to raise the priority level of what you're, what you're looking at or focusing yes, on. Yes, because you've hijacked a, norm, a, a typical system that, that works most of the time. You right. focus on the most important things. So if I can get you to focus on something, I will have caused you to misjudge its importance upward. What is it about writing something down that has uh, a similar effect? Even if it's a minor thing, once you put pen to paper, suddenly it becomes a bigger priority. Is that, again, back to just consistency? It is, it is consistency. But also, when you write things down, they typically become public. Mm-hmm. They're available for other people to see. So you want to be consistent in yourself, but you also want to be consistent in the eyes of the people whose regard you care about. You, you tell the story in, in Influence about the Chinese um, interrogators in the North Korean conflict of American servicemen, and they weren't brutal, they weren't torturing people, they were doing these very, very subtle psychological um, nudges, for lack of a better word. Right. How does a small little thing, uh, writing down something like America isn't perfect, become something as significant as it looks like you're uh, spouting communist propaganda? How, right. how do you go from that little thing to something as giant as so that? So let me say what they did in, in Korea, in the prison camps. So This is in the 1950s. Right. We're so, they would say, so, so you would agree that America isn't perfect, right? It's no, nothing's Yeah, I'll agree America isn't and then they'd say, that's the stepping stone. And then they'd say, how is it? How is it imperfect? Can you tell us some of the ways? And then, well, you know, uh, we've got some uh, economic uh, ups and downs. We don't do the greatest thing with uh, all of the, the, the members of our community and so on. And then they say, well, this is your idea. Could you write it down now for us? And then after you've written it down, they say, now... Would you be willing to speak to this this thing that you wrote on the camp um, broadcasting system? And now you are giving aid and comfort to the enemy mm-hmm. in public. It's that it's that subtle. It's that nuanced. And the next thing you know, just by admitting the country is imperfect, yeah. suddenly you go down a slippery slope to where you are borderline violating. It used to be name, rank, and serial number. Yeah, that's right. Used to be that's all you could give. But sure, I mean, everybody, no commu- no society is perfect. If you agree to that, that's the first step down that slippery slope. So let me ask something a little more pleasant. Um, the number one rule for salespeople is to show customers they genuinely like them. Why is this so much more important than the product they're actually trying to sell? Well... If you see, I know for myself, if I see that a salesman likes me, I exhale a breath. Oh, good. 
This person is going to take care of my interests. My flanks are protected. It's somebody who likes me. It used to be that they said the number one rule of sales was to get your customer to like you. Mm-hmm. I've revised that to, no, no, come to like your customer so that when they see that you like them, they will feel comfortable and they will be right to feel comfortable if you have really come to like them you will take care of their interests so my last question how can we work to protect ourselves from unscrupulous users of these various techniques you use the right term unscrupulous right we don't want people not to tell us when there's true scarcity when there's true social proof when there's true authority to move in a particular direction. We Th- want those to... things have become hardwired because they actually serve a purpose. That's a great insight. That's why they're hardwired. They typically lead us in positive directions. But if somebody counterfeits them, mm-hmm. those are the unscrupulous operators. Those are the people we have to watch out for. And we can do it uh, sometimes by looking at the, uh, the, the message they present, if they're fast-talking, for example, mm-hmm. that's a good example. But I like the idea of looking at reviews and contributing to reviews for any organization, any individual that is trying to move us in a particular direction. We have to provide evidence of whether they were honest and genuine or whether they were duplicitous. Huh quite fascinating. Can you stick around a little bit? I have a ton more questions for you. I can. We have been speaking with Professor Robert Cialdini of Arizona State University. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where you can hear uh, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things persuasion and compliance. You can find that wherever your finer podcasts are sold. Uh, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Bob, it seems so funny calling you Bob. Thank you so much for doing this. I have been looking forward to this for a while. Uh, I didn't really mention Yes50 scientifically 
proven ways to be persuasive. But this is one of those books that you could just randomly pick up, open it to any page, and there's a two or three page vignette that is so informative and and oh, it just crystallizes something. So I have to go. I I just find it, it fascinating. I have to go back to the early days when you were undercover. Yeah. So so you worked at at fundraising organizations and infomercials and and used car dealers. Who do you think was the best at applying the techniques of persuasion? And who do you think you learned the most from watching? Of those professionals? Yes. Well, both those professions and individual. You referenced Jim, uh, the guy who was selling the um, the alarm fire alarm systems, yeah. who had a wonderful little technique. Oh, I left something in the car or whatever. Uh, would it be okay if I leave and let myself back in? And just that subtle little thing of you're now imbuing him with trust to come back into the house. That's right. He said to me, Bob... Who do you allow back into your house with your own key? Who do you give your own key to get back into your house? It's somebody you trust, right? Man. And he said, I want those couples trusting me before I ever begin my sales pitch. That, that's Brilliant. just amazing. So so that was the alarm yeah. business. Uh, the used car or new car business is one of the most frustrating shopping experiences of everything. What is that about, and, and what did you learn from that group? You know, what I learned is that they recognize over many, many years, they found out what works, right? But they really don't understand why it works conceptually what or psychologically. What are the factors that make this thing work? When mm-hmm. I would ask them about it, they would just give me a circular answer. Uh, you know, it works well, he, it works. It works because they like it, or they, you know, they, they've come to like it because I've made them like it. It, it. it doesn't. They don't know what they did in some kind of psychological sense. That was the most fun for me was to take something that really worked and unpacked it, unpack mm-hmm. it in terms of the drivers of it, not just the procedures that produced it, but the psychological tendencies that accounted for it. And what about uh, some of the infomercials? Uh, the examples you give in the book are just, uh, it's a, the takeaway I constantly come back to is, are we really that easy to manipulate? And I keep coming back to the answer, yeah, I guess we are. We are because these things are hardwired in us and we get, we get cues that trigger those responses that are essentially unthinking because most of the time, if one or another of these principles is really there, authority, social proof, they do steer us correctly. Mm -hmm. So these people are essentially uh, hijacking our our natural tendencies by, by counterfeiting the cues for when we should undertake uh, action that's consistent with those tendencies. You, you use the example of the female predator firefly yeah. using a certain set of illuminations and dances that to a slightly different male firefly species appears to be a mating dance, and instead they come to them, in which case they're devoured. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So if that was too successful, they'd eliminate their food supply, mm-hmm. and P- and the other fireflies would, would eventually learn not to respond to that. Right. Uh, apparently, this can work just when it's on the margins. You can't overreach yeah. as a species or as a salesperson. Precisely right. Huh. That, that, that's quite interesting. Um, the other thing that really stood out in the book, and I mentioned this during the broadcast portion, it is the overlap and the parallels to some of the behavioral finance mm. things we've seen. Uh, what do you find in that space to be interesting? And do you ever go there thinking, hey, that's something I, I should research or this is an area I might want to experiment with? Because there's a lot of interesting academic work done on that side of the, of the there street. There is. And, of course, people like uh, Daniel Kahneman, mm-hmm. uh, Amos Tversky, uh, and Richard Thaler are um, – are, are, are superstars in that area, and I certainly want to pay attention to what they've done. Uh, but there's another couple of guys mm-hmm. who are not in that space, not academics, Buffett and Munger, uh-huh. who've taught me because about 20, 25 years ago, I went to my mailbox and opened a, 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 an envelope it was a share of Berkshire Hathaway stock, right? Which, by the way, this is another urban legend, which it turns out to be true, about you and Charlie Munger. Yeah. Tell us. It was sent to me by Charlie. Mm-hmm. He said, I read that book that you wrote, and it's been so gainful for us here that by the rule of reciprocation, you're entitled <laughs> to a share of stock. It was about $75,000 then. Back then? Then. And that, that what year was that? It was like 25 years ago. So 25 years ago, $75,000 is real money. Yeah. Well, it's $320,000 now. Not too shabby. But the thing is, because I had that share of stock, I was able to get the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders letter The annual every letter year. they put out, right. It is brilliant psychology. Mm-hmm. It is brilliant and so that's where I've been exposed to some of the connection between this stuff and finance mm-hmm. by reading that letter and seeing how Buffett, who's not just um, a, a brilliant investor, he's a brilliant communicator about being a brilliant investor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have to ask the, a little bit about the Munger story. Your your home and a letter comes. What's going through your mind when you open up this package with a stock certificate? And I assume there was a cover letter from yes, Charlie. There was a cover letter from what, Charlie. What was that moment like? It was disbelief. It was because, as you say, twenty five years ago, seventy five thousand dollars. That's a that was a lot to me. Uh, and uh, and and I'm thinking this is this is a joke. One of my friends has done this because they know how much of a fan I am of Berkshire Hathaway. I never could afford it at that point uh-huh. uh, to buy. But it turns out I checked it out, and it wasn't. And then there was a phone number there. Come on. No. And, and Charlie said, could you give me a call because we'd, I'd like to. And then he, he asked me to do some things uh, for him and with him. And now um, we're, we're friends. That's ama- That's an amazing story. I'm a huge fan of their work, their writing, uh, and I always use Munger's uh, admonition, 
to invert. Anytime you're looking at something and it's a little perplexed, ask yourself, well, what would happen if the counterfactual, what would happen mm -hmm. if the opposite were true? Right. What does that mean? And very often, it's pretty clear that, oh, I'm looking at this from the wrong angle. Once I flip it, mm. it becomes very, very easy to, uh, to do. And perhaps the greatest uh, little bit of social proof, right in the middle of the financial crisis in 08-09, Buffett pens a op-ed in, I don't remember if it was the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, but it was one of the bigger yeah. mainstream papers saying, um, buy America, I know I am, and said, hey, I'm a long-term investor, even at 84, or 80, yeah. whatever he was back then, late, late 70s, uh, and I'm buying stock here, and you should also. Uh, that's potentially enormously influential. Another example of social proof. Yes, cu coupled with authority. Huge authority. Perhaps the most successful investor of all time. Maybe all time. He's got an advantage. Him and Charlie have an advantage that good genetics and longevity allow compounding. <laughs> and the last couple of decades certainly hasn't hasn't hurt their uh, mm -hmm. their reputations. What what else have you done with Munger and Buffett? It seems like. That's an interesting uh, crew to hang with. Well, you know, they Charlie has a dinner every um, every weekend before the Berkshire Hathaway mm -hmm. uh, uh, annual e event, and uh, this is in Omaha. This is in Omaha. My wife and I are invited along with other people, um, and uh, we get to hear his latest piece of wisdom. Mm -hmm. You know, and he said something. A couple of years ago, I really like it. He 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 said, "The way I help myself avoid mistakes is I keep a list of inanities, yeah. the things not that I have done wrong, because I will protect myself from believing they were mistakes. You know, just human psychology. Sure, but I keep a list of the inanities of the people around me who have made terrible mistakes, and before I make any choice, I consult that list and make sure I'm not falling into the same mistake territory that they." Uh, they uh, strode through in making that mistake. That that's hilarious. That figure out what uh, somebody you don't respect would do, and then just do the opposite. Right. That that that's fascinating. That their body of work and their philosophy is is going to live on for a, for a long, long time. Before I get to my favorite questions, I just wanted to go through. Um, the other questions to see what I might have missed. There were two in particular um, I wanted to ask you about, and then we'll jump to our favorites. So you have consulted on several political campaigns as a behavioral scientist over the past uh, couple of decades. I have a couple of questions on this. The first is, have the modern techniques of, of political campaigning, how much better have we has this group gotten at figuring out what voters really want, what motivates them, and how to reach them? Is is that now an, a dark art, or is it becoming a science, or somewhere in no, between? No, it's it's a science. It's 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 big data mm -hmm. and big data uh, churning and crunching and and extracting that kind of information. But what we've learned, I think, the biggest difference in modern life is that. 
uh, here in the United States, we've become partisan. We, we, we are not really susceptible to persuasion attempts mm-hmm. anymore to change our opinions or I, our, our, our beliefs or, or attitudes toward various candidates. What they have focused on is getting out the vote mm-hmm. from your base. If you do that, you win. Whoever gets more of their base out right. is the victor. Now, I remember reading a Wired magazine article about the former Google employees who had joined the Obama campaign, and apparently the iteration and the big data analysis that you're referring to, they became tremendously successful at knowing how to word the request for donations, where to put it, is it the top left, is it the bottom right? The Even the font and the color and the size, right. they just test, they had so many right. page views, they would just test and A, B, A, B, A, B, test over right. and over again. Eventually, they just kept tacking towards what worked. Right. That's that's the big data. So that that's right. So now you're not really talking about persuasion, you're talking about influence. Mm-hmm. Getting people to donate, getting people to register, getting people to vote. To the choir that you're preaching to as opposed to converting. That's right. You're not converting. And but they've figured out ways to make that more successful. So for example, during a campaign there will be a lot of volunteers who are canvassers. They right. call, they try to get people to donate or 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 uh, register. What they have found is if that person can say to the uh, to the recipient of the message, I'm your neighbor or I live here in town too. So it's not like bringing people in from out of state isn't as successful as saying, hey, uh, I live in the same town as you and here's why this is important. That's what they've learned. Huh. You bring in these people from someplace else because you need to staff a particular office and you, you're not, you're as trying, effective. not nearly as effective. It's the connection that allows you to say, oh, this person is like me. I can move in this direction. So, so let me... Um, reference the current uh, White House occupant, and you said something now that puts Donald Trump into a little more uh, better context. I always thought that he was a very unpersuasive sort of politician because we know he has a tendency to not tell, be a straight shooter, not tell the truth. He kind of makes stuff up on the fly. But what I'm hearing from you is he's not trying to persuade me to switch a vote or to come to be go from a, a center left progressive New Yorker to let me support someone who's very right of center. What you're suggesting is he wants to motivate his base. He right. wants to take the people who um, believe as he does and get them out to vote. Right. While we're having this conversation, uh, there's the caravan from Guatemala he's mm-hmm. talking about. He's talking about mm-hmm. tax cuts. He's talking about our friends, the Saudis, all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff that I would imagine the opposing party and even people in the middle would disagree with, but his base just eats up. Right. He does a couple of things very well. One is to speak with confidence and certainty. Regardless of whether or not it's deserved or not. And, and that does move people into saying, oh, well, here's an authority. This person must know what he's talking about. Look at the confidence, the certainty with which he speaks. Right? Mm-hmm. That's one thing. The other thing is he uses social proof 
brilliantly in his. Um, everybody knows. You know, people yes, are talking. Everybody, you know, everybody Con- I talk to says, but then in his campaign rallies, uh-huh. he has he he has the cameras. He says to the camera, "Turn the cameras around. Take a look at this big room filled with people." Social proof. If all these people think I'm legitimate, if all these people think I'm right, I must be right. I, I have had the debate with friends who, who think he's dumb, and I argue with them. You have to acknowledge his street smarts. You have to acknowledge him. All right, he's not Reagan. We can't call him a great communicator, but he's an incredibly effective communicator to that group of people, right. the people he wants to motivate to get out and vote. It, it, it's... I'm always I'm an independent. I'm always astonished how the partisanship on the left, how the Democrats, I don't I don't really mean partisanship, how the faith in your own political beliefs can obscure mm. some truths out there mm-hmm. that would make you a more effective party, candidate, uh, ideology, whatever, but people have a hard time seeing past the end of their nose. That's right. Yeah, once once you've got a uh, hard position, it's really difficult to move away from it, especially if you've made it in an active public way. If if you're going to give advice to either political party about either getting their base out to vote or persuading the independents in the middle, a lot of states are purple. Um, and if we hold aside the gerrymandered districts, what advice would you provide to try and um, win that great purple middle. It's something that, for some reason, the two major parties have not employed systematically. Mm-hmm. It's something called the convert communicator. Which is what? I- Somebody who used to believe the other side and now testifies, oh no, and then I realized, or I saw something, or this happened to me. It could be, for example, in a healthcare issue. I, you know, I was an opponent of this, and then I got sick, or my son got sick. And then they say, I used to be in your shoes. You can't reject somebody who was like like you, you, right? And then they say, but I flipped. And you're willing to be open to this guy even though this person is saying something that is not what you currently believe because he or she used to believe. That, that's quite believe. fascinating. It'll, it's too late for 2018, but hopefully people will pay attention to that uh, for 2020. So I know I only have you for a finite amount of time. Let me get to my uh, favorite questions that I ask all my guests. Um, these are always interesting because I end up finding out a lot about people that that I wouldn't have found out otherwise. And let me start with, what's the most important thing that people don't know about your background? I had a chance to play minor league baseball instead of go to school. Really? Yeah. I was a center fielder, and I wanted to be Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle. Uh, and the, the, the scout who was going to sign me said to me, tell me, are you— uh, could are you any good at school? I said yes. He said, "Could you go to college?" Yes. Could you finish college? Yes. Go to school, kid. Really? Go to school, kid. He recognized something that I couldn't hit a slider. Truth is, I couldn't hit a slider, and he knew I wasn't going to go up very high right. in, in the minor. All right. 
Um, and he said, go to your strength. Essentially, he didn't say it in those words. Go to your strength. If you're, go- if you're really good at school, go to your strength, mm-hmm. kid. And Barry, if I hadn't taken that advice, I don't know where I'd be right now, but I wouldn't be in this room with it, you. It w- you would have taken a very different path yeah. uh, on your career. I had tremendous accuracy as a pitcher in high school, yeah. and I could throw a, a wicked fastball. No breaking ball. That yeah. was it. Yeah. Can't throw a curve, you're done. So uh, similarly, yeah. um, but that's interesting. I had no idea. What, uh, were you a decent hitter? I was a good hitter, and I, I, I could get a jump on the ball, and, but I, I you know, couldn't hit a slider. <laughs> so tell us about some of your early mentors. Who influenced you either academically or professionally? Yeah, you know, once again, I, I, I've got academic mentors, but I'm going to go again to Buffett and Munger, who really? have just, just been um, breathtakingly good mm-hmm. at showing me how uh, success can be maintained and, and uh, augmented. Huh, that, that's fantastic. Um, what about psychologists? What psychologists influenced your approach to thinking about academics, behavioral psychology, sociology. Yeah. I'm going to say Kahneman, Tversky, and Thaler. You could, you could do worse. All right. Um, I've had Kahneman in here. He's delightful, yeah. and nobody is more amusing than Dick Thaler. He's just yeah. absolutely charming. Um, also, uh, a, a previous guest. Uh, we'll get a little social proof going. Great. Um, tell us about books. What are some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction? Well, you know, I'm going to stay in the category of 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 persuasion, social influence, compliance. Um, I, I would start with uh, Aristotle's rhetoric. First time really? anybody wow. took a systematic look. Now he was talking about orators, right? How do you make your case convincingly at, as an orator? That's all they had then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, and then. Do you remember a book in the 50s by a guy named Vance Packard, Hidden Persuaders? Oh, sure. I don't remember that yeah. book, but I'm familiar with the, the title. Yeah, I don't remember. I mean, it was, it, I was a kid at the time, but I remember reading it in college and thinking, this is the first time this guy really looks at the advertising industry and what makes these commercials successful psychologically. Mm-hmm. What is it about the psychological buttons that are being pushed? I remember something from that book, Choosy Mothers Choose Jif. Yeah. That was one of the examples. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have to imagine um, there are tons of other examples. Nobody systematically had looked at the psychology behind that within the industry? Not within just, the, no, not within the advertising industry. They're just flinging stuff against the wall. They're flinging against the wall. They were doing the uh, version of the A-B tests mm-hmm. without really controlling them, but just trying things out to see what worked. Yeah. And any other books? Those are both well, fascinating I, I, choices. Well, you know, I, I like Dan Ariely's Predictably Irrational. Love that book. Uh, you know, terrific insight that even though we seem to be irrational, it's in a predictable way because these irrationalities are built into the to the way we function you know, in modern life. You, you, you keep naming um, some of my white whales who I, I would love to get on. I've been And then there's Nudge. I, I love Nudge. Thaler's yeah. the book. Uh, Thaler, Thaler and, and Cass, Cass, Cass Sunstein. Sunstein. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, that's, an, that's another interesting book. Nudge, speaking of influence, apparently has become 
very influential around the world. A lot of governments have adopted the precepts for that. Not that. only that, but so has so has corporate America recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, fundraisers, NGOs, even ordinary citizens, because we've developed um, this this new category called popular behavioral science. Mm-hmm. So we're speaking to the people uh, whose whose tax money has paid for the research. Right. They're entitled to know what we found out about them with their money, right? So the one of the interesting things that we use from Nudge, anytime there's a 401k account that's opened, anytime a new hire happens, they automatically get a 401k, and in, the choices for what they're invested is already set to a default. Right. So the money comes out of their paycheck automatically, it's invested automatically, mm-hmm. If they want to change it, yep. they have to actively go out right. and change it. Because what we used, what corporate America used to do is, yeah, you're eligible for a 401k, fill out this paperwork. Right. Once you do that, go pick some funds. Right. And some ungodly, not, and, and there's a match. It's free money. Here's yeah. 6% or 4%. Yeah. And half the, I think it's 50-something percent of the employees wouldn't do the paperwork. Right. Who turns down free money? It's, <laughs> it's shocking. Any other books before I move on to my next No, that, that, that's, that's a, a good... That's a nice collection, to say the least. Um, what has changed in psychology since you started in the profession? What do you think is the most significant um, breakthroughs that have taken place? I'm going to go back to my previous answer and say that behavioral science... Now, behavioral scientists and psychologists are now speaking to the public mm-hmm. about their findings, the things that actually could influence the outcomes of the everyday person, as well as the corporate bottom line, mm-hmm. the government's uh, likelihood of getting uh, a good, uh, a good policies, and uh, fundraisers getting uh, more donations. So, so are you getting, huh. So, w- we're speaking with books. Blogs, um, uh, YouTube channels. We're, we're now speaking to the people who uh, paid the bills for this research in the first place and are entitled to know how this can benefit them. Tell us what you're really excited about right now. I've just, uh, with some colleagues, uh, answered a question that I've always had about social proof. You know, this is the idea that if the majority of people are doing something, if this is the largest selling uh, product, it causes people to want to say yes uh, to uh, the opportunity. There was this study in, in, in China. If you put an asterisk next to the items on a Chinese menu right, that says this is one of our most popular items, each one immediately becomes 13 to 20% more popular. Whether okay. or not it was beforehand or not. Right, right. You just tell people it's popular. It becomes more popular. Now, what if you're not the most popular? What if you're a startup? What if you <clears throat> don't have market share yet, but you've got a great idea, right, that uh, is getting some traction, but it's far away from being social proof-like uh, uh, idea? Here's what we found. If you describe a trend in it, even though it's in the minority, if only 30% of people are choosing this, right, and you tell people that 30% are doing this, we find you actually get them 
less likely to choose it because they can do the math. That means 70% are not. But if you say... Trending now. 12 months ago, 20% were. Six months ago, 25. This month, 30%. Now they jump on the bandwagon Hmm. because they see the trend is continuing. So that's how we defeat the, the problem of low social proof by giving them evidence of future social proof. Huh. That, that is quite fascinating. Um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. When I was first learning uh, the strategies of influence professions and I was taking training, at the end of the training, I would say, look, I am not actually applying for a job at your uh, place. Uh, I'm writing a book, and I would like for you to allow me to use the data that I, uh, uh, that I acquired in your training programs. They kicked me out the door, <laughs> right? I'm not surprised. Yeah. This is proprietary information, and they thought I was uh, an investigative reporter was going to reveal right. their strength. All right. So after that... I decided to use my principles in making that request. I said, I'm not um, uh, actually a a prospective uh, employee of your company. I'm writing a book, and I promise you that I will send you an early copy of the book. I will pay you in the coin you are paying me, that is information. Mm-hmm. So you know not only what works in your industry, you'll know what works ah. in all kinds of industry before any of your rivals will. Right? That's one thing. The other thing I said was, and I'm not just a, writing a book, I'm a university professor, and I'm learning from you. And they would look at me and say, you're a professor and you're our student? You mean we're teaching you? And they would puff up their chests and say, of course, you could. <laughs> so the quid pro quo and the appeal to ego. And the appeal to ego. You know, what is it? If you're the teacher, teachers don't have proprietary information. What the role of teacher is, is to dispense information. Mm-hmm. And so they did. That, that's fascinating. What do you do uh, for fun out of the office? What do you do to relax or for enjoyment? I have three grandchildren who are the light of my life, (laughs) and I spend time with one. One is a dancer, one's a soccer player, and one loves horses. And so I go with them to all of their uh, activities, and I couldn't be happier. What sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone just beginning their career in psychology and a recent college graduate? What, what would you suggest to them? Anyone? Here's what I would say. Go into every new situation where you don't know people and expect the best from them. What that will allow you to do is to be generous. And there are two enormously consequential downstream effects of being generous. One is people are generous back to you. Reciprocity. Right? By reciprocity. The other is they like you. And they want to do business with the people they like. Hmm. Interesting. And our final question, 
What do you know today about psychology that you wish you knew 30 years ago before you were yeah. had written Influence? You know, I'm going to answer that by uh, telling you a story of a friend of mine who had the question that I didn't know 30 years ago. He, he decided to study it as a marketing professor. And he said he wanted to find the single most effective influence approach, the one that would he should use in the situations that faced him because that was the one that was most powerful. And he went on a two-year search for this, and I saw him at a conference. He caught me by the elbow. He said, Bob, I found it. I found the single most effective influence approach. It is not to have a single influence approach. <laughs> that's a fool's game. Huh, to think that the same approach is going to work for all audiences in all circumstances at all times. No. You have to, you have to size up that situation, those conditions, and then you move with the appeal that best fits the circumstances. Quite, quite fascinating. Thank you, Bob, for being so generous with your time. This was really um, quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Professor Bob Cialdini, author of Influence and Persuasion, Persuasion and Yes, and numerous other papers about uh, the fields of psychology, influence, and compliance. If you enjoy this conversation, and I have to think you did, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple, iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you could see our other, I'm going to ballpark it at 250 or so previous conversations. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put together these weekly conversations. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Medina Parwana is our producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.